Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. It's always an honor to speak to my next guest, and we're going to be speaking now about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And joining us is the former commander of Canadian Special Forces Command, Kansov, including Canada's Elite Special Forces Unit, Joint Task Force 2. Are we heading into or already into the conflict of our time? Have the Russians been preparing for this with an understanding of what the West response would be and turns out to be? Are we missing something? Steve Day joins us, commanding former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, founder of Reticle.ca, Strategic Risk Specialists. Steve, thank you very much uh, for the time. I was talking to a guest in the last hour, John Wright, uh, and, and I, you know, 10 years, 10, 10 years, 10 days ago, 12 days ago, most Canadians had no real sense of what was going to happen. You know, the Russians were on the border of Ukraine and they said they weren't going to attack. And here we are now and we're forming opinions and we have strong views. How well and how long were the Russians preparing for what they're doing now? Did we miss something along the way? Hey, Roy, pleasure to be back with you. Um, I think. I don't think the intelligence apparatus missed what's been uh, what the Russians were preparing to do because you may or may not be aware that last July there were conversations when the Russians were doing lower level maneuvers back then, and President Zelensky actually confirmed to say, "Hey, are you guys what's going on here?" Effectively, so we have been watching it. I think what maybe got missed was a failure to imagine what this could be because clearly since the second world war we haven't really uh well other than the cuban missile crisis but but you know bear with me um haven't really imagined this this situation where there's a ground war in europe i think it's been a long time yes it sure has so so now we have this and we have other countries being drawn into it we have forces in Poland. There we have uh, the Polish um, military, maybe making Soviet-era jet fighters available to Ukrainian pilots. And in return, the United States may provide F-16s to Poland. Uh, all of these things are developing, and it's, at least we're only aware of them very, you know, on the surface, very, very recently. But, so we have the shooting war going on, but we also have, we keep talking about China being sort of the bully in the back of the room. Just where do they fit in? And the question becomes, is this Russia-Ukraine battle part of a much bigger global conflict? What Are we missing something here? Yeah, and again, I, I would say that if we look at the global competitive space of the you know 21st century and where we're currently living, clearly... There are Western liberal democracies the world over that are under assault from dictatorships and tyrants, etc., and a very much autocratic style of governance. So this has been going on for about 15 years in earnest for those that have been looking at it. But yes, make, make no mistake about it. The Chinese, the, looking at Taiwan, North Korea, looking at South Korea there in the Korean Peninsula, Iran, looking across the broader Middle East, are probably three other countries that are specifically watching how the West reacts to the Russian aggression. 
So can you expand on that a, a little bit? What might their intentions be, depending on what they see from the West? Well, again, if, if, let's just pick, pick China for a moment, because we, we do realize it's another geopolitical foe and global competitor. Um, it's been very clear that China has been messaging about Taiwan as part of the larger Chinese nation. And so in the West has been saying, no, we will defend, or specifically the United States, no, we will defend Taiwan and we'll, we will prevent that from folding back under China. So the Chinese situation, um, the Korean situation, or the Middle East situation, we've got three other adversaries with nuclear weapons just like the Russians have nuclear weapons, and clearly Great Britain, France, um, the United States have nuclear weapons on our side. So this whole nuclear um, brinksmanship from, from Vladimir Putin is going to be watched very closely about, is he bluffing? I, I don't know. Um, but if you're looking at that, that geopolitical space, if we do not, and I think we're actually doing not a bad job of uniting the West, but if we do not push back hard, without igniting World War III or a nuclear exchange, then those other nations will absolutely be emboldened. So when you hear the term, no-fly zone, and you hear the call by the Ukraine government, and you hear it supported uh, emotionally by people on the street in the West, does that make any sense at all, or is the plan that's being discussed that we've been made aware of that Poland may make some Soviet-era jet fighters available to Ukrainian pilots who trust, tested on those, who, who trained on them. In, in return, Poland gets F-16s from the United States. Does all of this come together? Are we, you know, I keep hearing the term hybrid war conflict and hybrid warfare. I'm trying to put it all together, Steve. Yeah, and, and it's, it's absolutely what they're in the middle of. Is, is This is a hybrid war. This is a hybrid conflict. And what that really means, it means using all the different levers of national power, diplomatic, economic, military, informational space, and applying those in different ways and means to achieve your national interests. So the Russians are very well known with their, their cyber threats, and they, they attacked Estonia in 2008. Clearly, they did the military piece in 2008 and then 2014 with Georgia and Crimea. They've used economic uh, pressures against Europe for decades. So they, they've been very good from a hybrid perspective, not, uh, not making sure they've crossed over that military line, which would draw us into a force-on-force -force hot war. But going back to the no-fly no zone position, um, and it's interesting, at least from my perspective, yes, I understand militarily why we may not want to put a no-fly zone in, 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 um, in effect, because I get it. I understand why that's difficult. However, I also think maybe there's a failure to imagine here. If we look back, because um, history repeats itself, look back to the Berlin airlift from 1948 to 1949, when the West flew in humanitarian aid into East Berlin and told the Russians, we're coming regardless of whether you want us to come or not. Is there any reason why we could not establish a similar air bridge to bring humanitarian aid in to those people who need the aid. We did something similar in Bosnia and in Syria even recently. So it is possible, but it just needs to be very, very clear what it is we're doing, and we need to make sure that diplomatic channels 
the military channels and everything is, is eyes wide open. So I hear people say, yeah, you can't do it. I do not ever believe in nevers and black and whites. I believe in the, in the gray space. And I think the West should be trying to play in that gray space and say, okay, got it. We might not be able to do a pure military no-fly zone, but why can't we do a humanitarian aid air corridor? Uh, Steve, when you look at Russia's activities and actions, go back to 1999, and, and, and I've done some reading over the last couple of days after you and I talked off the air. I started to look at the Second Chechen War from 1999 to 2009, and Russia taking on uh, a breakaway Chechen Republic in a brutal manner, and and it all starts to look familiar. Was did it sort of? I don't know. Did it begin with Putin for Putin there? Well, yeah, no, that's a that's a great example, Roy. The Chechen conflict in particular, um, and even just again recently, a Syria and Aleppo, uh, Russia, uh, Russia, and I would again, I think it's important here to say we're not attacking the Russian people, right? This is the Russian right. government, and as we're seeing, there's a lot of brave Russians standing up to Putin and his henchmen. But um, going back to the Chechen comment, yes, we're, we are seeing a replay of this. And part of this is because um, I'm convinced I'm not a I'm not a, a um, sorry, I'm not a Putin expert. But what I've read, what I understand is he surrounds himself with yes men. And so he doesn't get detailed, critical thinking about any of the things he's trying to put in place. And that's not only that, it's a conscript army. So it's very much. A, a, an organization that just executes orders without pushing back on them. So my sense is he's probably in a bit of trouble right now. And when he looks back from his experiential lens to Chechen, well, the world didn't really care about what was going on in Chechnya. They just let him do what he wanted to do. The world didn't really push back against Syria when he was using arguably chemical weapons and Aleppo and what the de devastation he did that. So he's potentially learned some wrong lessons back over the last 20 years, and now all of a sudden he's applying some of those wrong lessons in the wrong context, and he's got himself he's with his back against the wall. This is, this is my uh, looking at where we're currently at with, with Vladimir Putin in particular. Yeah, and he said earlier today that as long as Ukraine accedes to all his demands, he'll stop the war. That sounds to me like, I don't like where I am. I'm trying to get out of this. Uh, I may be oversimplifying things, but it certainly has a tinge of that to me. But let me come back to NATO and the responsibilities that NATO has and how we're being observed, as you said, by some of the dictator states in the world. So 2008, NATO's declaration in Bucharest, didn't that commit to opening the door to NATO membership to European democratic nations willing and able to assume the responsibilities of NATO membership. And then in 2014, there was another NATO declaration in Wales, which recognized Russia's military action in Ukraine that year and committed to collective defense, crisis management, and cooperative security. So don't those two separate NATO declarations somehow suggest that Ukraine might expect protection from NATO, or am I just not understanding? Well, until you're a full-fledged member of NATO, and let's not lose sight of NATO as a defensive alliance, right? right? So until you're one of those 30 nations, then you're not, um, you know, you don't get the automatic uh, uh, defense mechanisms surrounding you. But what's interesting, and I'm glad you brought up 2008, Roy, in 2008, when NATO said, hey, Georgia and Ukraine, we're going to consider letting you into NATO if you get rid of the corruption in your government 
and start working and looking a little bit more like Western liberal democratic nations. Well, what happened in 2008? He went into Chechnya. He made the comment about 2014. He went into Crimea. So NATO being a defensive alliance hasn't always really thought about what their, you know, big, big pronouncements, how that might be received on the Russian side. And I'm not suggesting we should give Vladimir Putin a pass here. What I am suggesting is sometimes when we send messages, we really don't think about it, how it's being received by others. Okay, so Putin keeps saying he just feels NATO and the European Union are pushing up against his borders, and he's having none of that. That's his, that's his, that's his excuse or his rationale for, for his actions. His actions are horrendous, but that's his, his rationale. That would appear to be his rationale, because if you do look back to NATO circa the 1990s and look at NATO circa 2020, and you can see we have expanded eastward. Now, at the same time, we were welcoming Russia to come into the NATO fold because the intent was we'd be one big, relatively happy family. I think he's learned the lessons over the years, and he's using our own weaknesses against us, just like any bully, right? You come across that bully in the schoolyard, sometimes you've got to punch the bully in the nose, and you realize he's just a bully and he's actually a weak coward. I'm not suggesting with nuclear weapons we want to necessarily punch Vladimir Putin in the nose, but I think we need to get up there and, and keep the diplomatic channels open and say there's certain things we are absolutely not going to accept. For example, why do we allow him to keep stating what the red lines are? Why doesn't NATO put some red lines down? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We, we, we certainly can do that and uh well it's been done before by president obama but that didn't matter it didn't mean very much once right the red line was breached but so we'd have to uh, we'd have to do better than that let me ask you about uh, about your company and what you've been doing at radical.ca strategic risk specialist because you've been spending time in i think it's six different european countries and and working with those governments in those countries tell us about that please Yes, since 2016, uh, we have about 50 um, largely Canadian but other international instructors, and we support the NATO Special Operations Schoolhouse on a whole range of different courses. But in terms of Eastern Europe, we've actually been in 10 different Eastern European countries, helping those um, fledgling democracies, because I would still characterize lots of them as fledgling democracies, um, understand national resistance and national resilience. So whole of society defense constructs and then national resistance in terms of if the Russians did come in, how do you resist? And so that's something that uh, not only my company, but we're partnered with a U.S. company and we support the NATO Special Operations uh, Headquarters in Chev, uh, Belgium, as a matter of fact. Okay, I have to ask you this question. Your special operations, do special operators just see the world a little differently? You see opportunity and potential where others might not. That is that a fair question? Well, I, I think like any professional in any field, you're going to have people that look at the world differently. And special operations, we do look at the world differently, but we need our general purpose force brothers and sisters. We need the intelligence apparatus. We do need that larger effect or support to achieve specialized effects. But I, I would say... Special operations men and women generally view the world slightly differently. And that's okay because diverse perspectives are what makes, uh, makes life worth living. This guy was first on the air with me 
When was it? 1990? John, right? Yeah. When, we, 90, when was the first time we talked on the air? I think it was 1991. 1991, huh? Uh-huh. We did federal elections together in the studio, provincial elections in the studio. And uh, I always, always really appreciated uh, your knowledge and your expertise. And it's very interesting what you found out talking to Canadians and my real public opinion, what you found out about how Canadians feel about what's going on in Ukraine. And this is the one that leaps out. 37 million population, 6.5 million adult Canadians say what? 6.5 million or 19% of the adult population says that if they could, that they would uh, go to Ukraine and take up fighting against the Russians. And I think that that is a combination of great frustration in not being able to do anything about this. Um, and and also a, a sense of humanitarianism to try and save uh, the Ukrainian people from being taken advantage of by basically a wolf. So I, I think we've started to see people leave. Uh, there have been some very emotional broadcasts of people who are leaving and going to the Ukraine to take up arms in the Ukrainian foreign uh, legion. It's happening from many other countries, but I think this is goes beyond simply you know, people who, in fact, have been in the armed forces and want to travel. There are many who have never had any experience and who, I'm not recommending it, but who have decided that this is a fight that they want to be in because of what they're watching. Yeah. So I don't want to go through point by point by point. I mean, I can, but I'd rather if you would just share with us. I have all the points in front of me. Mm -hmm. But if you would just share with us, please, which particular uh, answers to questions that you received resonate most with you? Well, I, I think there's a narrative when you take all the polling that we've done in the last week, which has been pretty extensive, and you put them all together, it actually says a story. And the story is at the beginning of the week, 91% of Canadians said that they stood with the Ukrainian public. And at the end of the week, 92%. So unwavering support. We find that uh, 63% of people believe that um, Mr. Putin is not bluffing about um, using nuclear weapons, that the veiled threat at the beginning could be a reality, and that is the tripwire. Um, we saw a shift going from the beginning of the week that said we're tilting towards intervening with some kind of military power to a complete pullback, where Canadians effectively said, um, three quarters of Canadians said, look, um, we want all of the arms to be given to the Ukrainians through NATO. We, we want as many... Uh, sanctions put in place. In fact, it's interesting, Roy, because weapons overtook the uh, the whole aspect of the sanctions. So only, you know, one in 10 said we should just go ahead with the specter of potential nuclear uh, fallout. Um, and the rest of the people were pretty much, you know, on side with doing something. Um, I, I think the, the only other stuff that we see here is the, the prime minister has got good numbers. I mean, let's face it, he had the worst numbers he's had two weeks previously with the truckers. And now he is seen as um, on par with Joe Biden, um, about 20 points higher than Mr. Yeltsin, uh, than Boris Johnson, sorry, um, in, in the stuff that we'd, we'd also done in the UK. And, and so I think at the end of the week, what it paints is a, is a grim picture of what we're watching and some grim choices that Canadians see. It's, it's almost like, it's almost like, you know, it's a, a bridge too far. We just can't yeah. make it across. Yeah. We're angry. I don't know where the anger is going to go at the end of this, but certainly the vast majority believe that this is war crimes that Mr. Putin is, has uh, undertaken. 
and that um, we believe that to a majority, a full majority, that the sanctions may cause a toppling of his regime. So in a nutshell, that's that's kind of where there's lots of other numbers there, but it's it's a bridge too far. So I'm looking at a couple of the numbers that really jump out at me. So two weeks ago, we really, we, I mean, we knew the Russians were massing on the border of Ukraine, but they, they kept saying we're not going in there. And uh, there was no sense of, uh, of what, we were, what we're dealing with now. We were worried about the supply chain. We were worried about whether we were going to wear masks and have to show these uh, QR codes forever. But here we are, 6th of March, and I see these numbers. Staring down the barrel of World War III, 67% of Canadians. Mm-hmm. 64% feel the situation will become nuclear war. So we've gone from being essentially just you know observers at a distance to being worried about nukes. In 10 days. Yes. Uh, and that's where, as I said, the early polling on this show showed us tilting towards something uh, of a military intervention and then suddenly pulling back and saying we, we can't go there. So the tripwire is now uh, very visible to the international leaders who have been making it very clear over the last few days that they cannot have a no fly zone that they've made it very clear to Mr. Putin that if the Russians step into NATO territory, that it could in fact be a violation. And they've warned all of their amassing troops not to step over the line as well. What we've also seen though, and um, there's been some TikTok visuals of it, you know, tanks on on, um, train um, trestles heading off to towards Kingston, just, you know, actually right through Toronto. And we hear that the, um, the Germans and the Poles may be handing over aircraft that the Ukrainians right. are familiar with uh, rather than, you know, the most updated things yeah. that they wouldn't be able to fly. Exactly. So we see a few things going on here. One is that we understand that we can't cross that tripwire without potentially triggering something devastating. On the other hand, we are quite prepared to send in military equipment from Canada and our allies, as well as the economic sanctions. We've spoken many times with Dr. Yuri Felstinsky on this program, Russian-American historian, and one of his books is Blowing Up Russia, which has been banned officially in, in Russia, and it was filled with insider knowledge of how the successor to the state police, the KGB, so the successor of the FSB, launched a war and fabricated terror attacks. Alexander Litvinenko, who is Mr. Dr. Feshtinsky's partner, co-author of Blowing Up Russia, was murdered in London, as you know, and a UK government inquiry came to the conclusion after several years that the order had come from the Kremlin, and there were two men suspected of having spiked Litvinenko's tea with radioactive polonium-210. And one of those men, one of those men, and they were trying to extradite him to the UK, one of those men was awarded a state medal by Vladimir Putin and became a member of the Russian parliament. So the individual who is suspected of having murdered or participated in the murder of uh, Alexander Litvinenko gets a medal from Putin and becomes a member of the Russian parliament. Dr. Yuri Felstinsky joins me, Russian-American historian, Blowing Up Russia is one of his books, which absolutely infuriates Putin. And another one of his books is The Corporation. Yuri, thank you for for coming on. It, It must still be difficult for you to hear about your friend and co-author 
Litvinenko and the just the callous murder of him by Putin because of what he was what, what you were both revealing in the book. Well, the most important part, of course, that when the book was written, no one actually really believed in this because it was very difficult for people to imagine then the, the the Russian government is able to kill 300 of their uh, own uh, citizens uh, in order to provoke the Second Chechen War, to start the che- Second Chechen War, to blame it terrorist acts on Chechens, and by doing this also kind of promote Putin and help him to become president. And now I guess, of course, the situation is very different. Now everybody in the world knows that Putin is able to to kill people and to give orders to kill people because we are witnessing these murders every day now live on TV. Right. And before he, and he was described as a terrorist who took millions of hostages and started killing them by one of our guests, who's a Russian businessman who was on the program yesterday. Before he did that, he was killing his opponents. He was killing, he killed your friend, Litvinenko. He killed others uh, who got in his way. Who is Putin? When you think about this man, you know him. I mean, have you ever met him, by the way? No, I never met him. Uh, Litvinenko did. I never met him. Okay. So but, your friend did. Uh, yeah, but uh, Putin is uh, kind of typ- typical uh, KGB uh, officer who served for this organization all his life. And uh, then he slowly was promoted to high and high and high positions. And at one point, he became director of the FSB. And when... Uh, when it was time to replace Yeltsin, uh, somehow the uh, FSB uh, was so much controlling the, the politics of Russia that all three candidates whom Yeltsin uh, had in front of him on the table to choose from uh, were from KGB. There was uh, Sergei Stepashin, who was former director, of the state security, uh, Evgeny Primakov, who was former director of uh, SBR, which is Foreign Intelligence Service, and of course Vladimir Putin. And he kind of got lucky and uh, Yeltsin liked him more, so he decided that he would be the next president. But my point is that by 2000, the former KGB, the FSB, was so much in control of the situation that, you know, whomever Yeltsin would choose, uh, it would be a person from state security, and probably the situation would be the same. Mm -hmm. Are you surprised by anything that Putin does? No, no. Uh, Indeed, indeed, in 2015, uh, after Russia invaded Ukraine for the first time in 2014, I wrote a book uh, under the title World War III, The Battle for Ukraine. And in that particular book, I described what's going to happen by details, you know, even some minor details, like the Russia is going to invade Ukraine from Belarus. That first they will take control over Belarus and they would invade from Belarus in the direction of Kiev. 
that they are going to blackmail the world with nuclear weapons, which they have. No, it was also predictable, unfortunately, after 2014, that every time I think now about this, I am thinking that we like lost the time when Ukraine gave us in 2014, when they stopped Russian invasion for the first time. And we had those eight years, which we unfortunately lost. And now we were caught by surprise by Putin. And I think now at least the entire world understands uh, how dangerous Putin is. And the entire world understands that we have to deal with him and we have to break his neck now, literally. Otherwise, uh, he is going to destroy us. Otherwise, he is going uh, to have nuclear war against us. I remember speaking with you about that book. And, uh, and you did speak about nuclear war and Putin. And you have no doubt in your mind that if he's left, if he retains power, that sooner... I don't want to say sooner than later, but let me try that. Do you have any doubt that sooner than later, nuclear weapons will come into play in some way with Putin? There are several laws which were passed by the Russian government uh, recently, which are very important. One of those laws uh, was passed in December of 2021, uh, prior to invasion, and it deals with new standards for mass burials of victims, including those who are killed uh, by nuclear, uh, by radiation or by nuclear weapons. Uh, in addition to this, there is another law. Uh, when uh, Russian army now has mobile crematoriums, so which are following the army. So instead of carrying bodies back to Russia, they are going to burn them right, you know, where they are and send just ashes to Russia. There is also another law that soldiers are not allowed to carry with them any documents and IDs, uh, including those metal, you know, jetons, which with the name. So no one would know who is who uh, when they uh, operate outside the Russian Federation. I mean, there are, there are extremely, um, uh, how to say, extremely unusual laws, yeah. let's put it this way. Uh, they carry now special equipment which is able to make, uh, you know, huge graves for so they would put, you know, mass uh, bodies into those graves very quickly and cover it, and no one know how would know how many people were killed. It's 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 very scary, but the point is the following: uh, they are fighting in Ukraine now. They are not going to stop in Ukraine. They are going to proceed to Moldova. They probably will start the operation against Moldova even before they're done with Ukraine, because it might take some time for them 
to you know to finish with Ukraine the way Putin you know considers the operation to be finished. They are going to destroy the entire country because Ukrainians are fighting, and this means that Russia. Uh, would use more and more power to destroy cities, literally, just, just you know, completely destroying them. And uh, our only hope, indeed, to stop Putin is to stop him in Ukraine, because as soon as he is done with Ukraine, and Moldova is, of course, a small state if you compare it to Ukraine, yeah. uh, he will have control of all three countries which are not members of NATO. This is Ukraine, uh, Belarus, of course, and Moldova. Uh, Belarus, as we know, several days ago withdrew itself from non-nuclear status. And Lukashenko would ask at one point Putin to return, quote-unquote, nuclear weapons which were taken from Belarus in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed. We have three minutes, uh, Yuri. How do we wrap this up? You, you know, you said the, the only option here to get out of this and, and avoid nuclear confrontation at some point with Putin, and I think you say sooner than later, is to take him out. Do you think that there is that kind of determination uh, in, in Russia and that there are the people who would say, hey, this is getting too out of control. We have to do something about it. We have to do something specific about it. Do you see that happening? No, I, I think we should not uh, hope for, uh, for Russians who are going to take Putin uh, down. Uh, this is not going to happen. We are not going to be so lucky. What we have to do, what we must do in order to avoid nuclear conflict is to stop... Putin in Ukraine. This is our only chance. Because if Putin takes Moldova and Ukraine and Belarus, then he will present an ultimatum to NATO and will demand the Baltic states. And then we are going to have a full-scale war between NATO countries and the Russian Federation. And then we are going to have, of course, nuclear war, because the moment Putin realizes that he would not be able to finish conven- to win conventional war, uh, he would use nuclear weapons. So we better fight Putin on Ukrainian territory, uh, where the entire country is opposing him, precisely because Ukraine is not a member of NATO. If we do it from territories of NATO, like from the Baltic states or from Poland, we are talking about nuclear war. Does he leave you alone because you're an American citizen? Because he killed your your, your co-author, Litvinenko. Um, well, he, he, he killed many people, and uh, this is, of course... Uh, are I, you scared? I, do you worry about No, no, no. And especially, especially now, I think we have much much bigger problem to to deal with and the last thing literally the last and honestly the last thing i do i think is about my personal security this was never a priority for me oh you're a brave man especially now and especially now so what are the concerns about the nuclear facilities in ukraine and they have quite a few and they rely on nuclear energy. Bob Leach spent years as a senior manager at the Vermont Yankee Nuclear Power Station. 
As senior manager responsible for radiation protection, he developed and implemented the radiation protection program at the nuclear power station and developed and maintained the environmental program. Bob, thank you for coming on the air. Are you familiar with uh, the types of facilities which exist in Ukraine or are nuclear power plants essentially of uh, you know dif- different types of construction? Yeah, I'm familiar with what uh, what they've got in the Ukraine. Those are what they call BFER Russian reactors, but they're uh, very similar to uh, the Kandu reactors you've got in Canada and the PWRs that we have in the United States. So it's a, uh, a pressurized water reactor that's actually built inside a containment. Unlike How, Chernobyl, sorry, go ahead. Which, uh, unlike Chernobyl, which was a carbon uh, uranium type of reactor. And it had no containment on that one. Okay. How worried were you when you saw this, uh, the initial developments, the flames coming out of that reactor, or not the reactor, but the nuclear facility in Ukraine? How worried were you? Well, as far as, until I found out that it was an admin building, I was concerned. It could have caused a, a significant issue if it had been in the reactor compartment area or the reactor building. Uh, it would not have been an accident, anything like Chernobyl, but it could have been fall in the category of an accident like uh, Three Mile Island or uh, Fukushima. Those were two accidents where there was big problems, but there wasn't a real significant hazard to the public from either one of them. Okay, so we know there are either one. Yeah, we know there are multiple facilities in Ukraine. If they come under attack, how powerful would munitions have to be to seriously compromise a nuclear reactor? Well, uh, the last study I saw, if you were trying to uh, really blow up the reactor itself or the containment around it, it would take a horrendous amount of uh, explosives just to damage the containment, and that wouldn't get you to damaging the reactor itself yet. That's just the containment the reactor is in so it i can't imagine a missile doing very much damage to anything other than the containment okay uh you had a tremendous record i checked your record of keeping staff at your nuclear facility healthy and total exposure to radiation below the national averages in the united states and you maintained radiation waste at your nuclear facility at the lowest level in in your industry so uh, let me draw on that experience if uh, the ukrainians were to try to you know shut these things down because they the russians were threatening to uh, to attack the uh, facilities this isn't as simple as flipping a switch and everything just turns off is it no it's not it uh, it takes uh, in an emergency you can stop the reactor uh uh fission problem, in other words, you can shut the reactor itself down, but you still have a lot of decay heat that can be very hazardous. you got to cool it down also. The cool down takes a good couple of days to happen. And the last I heard of the uh, six reactors in Ukraine that uh, the Russians have supposedly taken uh, control over, they had shut down four of those six, and we're cooling them down. I did not hear what the condition was of the other two, whether they were already shut down or not. But the four, 
Well, they did say that they had shut down the floor and that they were in the process of cooling them down. Okay, what, Bob, what are your fears, knowing that the Ukraine nuclear facilities are in the path of the Russian military? And as you say, the Russians say they've taken over four of them. What are your fears about uh, about the rest of them? Well, I, I, the big fear I would have is if, if they took control of the plant and then isolated it so that no uh, power came in, no off-site power came in, and uh, no support came in. Then they could run into a uh, Fukushima situation where they would ultimately run out of, uh, they needed a certain amount of electricity to handle the cooling of those plants, even after they are completely shut down, because they got pools full of uh, nuclear fuel that is hot. It will... Uh, boil water very easily, and the boil the water could boil away if they don't have any way to get more water into those pools or into the reactor itself if they uh, if it's still fueled. Yeah, and you'd wonder whether for, forward military units would really know what to do with those places. Well, it did. Uh, they did say at the uh, six units that they did retain the crew even though they are under gunpoint all the time. But at least they were smart enough to keep the crew there who would know how to operate the plant. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 